Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Calzi, and I'm so glad you are here today. Um, if you are new to Encounter Church, I want to welcome you, let you know we have an app that we've created just for you. It's free. We're not tracking you to sell you diapers or anything random like that. You can download it at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. Um, the reason why is because the verse we're going to look at today, just like last week, I think has a lot of power um, to transform our lives. And it's a verse that's worth reading and internalizing and memorizing because of the power it has to transform our life. Because today we're going to be wrapping up our um, series called Love Dates and Heartbreaks. And um, in the midst of this series, we've been um, looking at a lot of things that focus on what we can do and how we can engage people and how we can navigate um, the relational things. And one of the things that I think you've heard me say over the course of a couple few weeks is um, this issue around the responsibility you have. But there's always on the other side, another side to the equation, which is the other human being. And what do we do with them? Because if you notice, they're a little bit of a challenge sometimes. They cause a little bit of an issue. In fact, when Sesame Street, which is this show that all of us probably remember growing up, learning, and listening to, um, I learned so much of my ABCs and some of my favorite childhood characters centered around this issue of um, Sesame Street. And what was genius about Sesame Street is who Sesame Street put on the street. When they were thinking through all the different potential categories of people and issues, they settled on one character that at the time was really completely unheard of on television for kids' programs. It was Oscar the Grouch. Uh, do you remember Oscar? Oscar said the things that you thought but were afraid to say out loud. Like that was Oscar. And Oscar um, had this ability of kind of just being the downer in whatever conversation he found himself. Oscar had the ability to completely... <laughs> kind of sucked the air out of the room by the way the statements he would make. And the creators of Sesame Street realized we need to have someone who um, really teaches the kids that in life people aren't always pleasant, that sometimes there's difficult people. And in a way that's somewhat, I think, even a deeper kind of reality being alluded to is that the same person who was the voice of Oscar the Grouch was also the same puppeteer who did Big Bird, who was the exact opposite of Oscar the Grouch. And I think in some ways, that's so true of us, right? I mean, we have our Oscar the Grouch moments, and then we have our bounding, big blue, yellow, Big Bird moments where everything is great and grand, and we walk down the street, and life makes sense. And... One of the things I was listening to just recently was a marriage counselor talking about um, working with a couple that was going through a divorce. And um, he's, he was telling a story about a crock pot. And he was sitting in the office, and here's this couple, and they're kind of really at, at each other's throats. And the issue, the thing that is completely kind of centered and, and destroyed the conversation they were having was this issue of a crock pot. And I mean, to the point that he was like, what is happening with this couple? He's like, do you use this crock pot? 
No, I never used the crock pot. Well, do you use the crock pot? No, I never used the crock pot. Okay, well, then it shouldn't be an issue. No, the crock pot is an issue. And you just watch this divorce proceeding kind of just devolve even darker because of a crock pot. Because the reality is to be human means there's going to be conflict. And sometimes conflict comes out of nowhere. And it catches us off guard. And it grabs hold of us and something little becomes something really big. And it's no, I think, it's no coincidence that when Paul, who's the most prolific author in the New Testament, when Paul writes his letter um, to a group of people trying to understand and walk through Christianity, um, that he chooses to, to dwell on this one specific topic after he's written 11 chapters of deep, profound theological treatise about the good news of Christianity. And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, and they are a group of people who are kind of unique in the early church. They are a church that formed out of the initial aftermath. You see, Jesus is crucified on the cross on Friday, resurrected on Sunday, and there's about a 40-day period where Christianity is in this kind of early germination stage. Forty days after the resurrection, you have this massive Jewish festival um, called um, Temple. It's called the Booth, and we call it Pentecost. And what ends up happening is all of these thousands of people are in Jerusalem for this gathering, and Christianity explodes, has its first kind of large preaching moment. And, and all of these people who've come to Jerusalem for this massive festival spread back over the Roman Empire. And some of them are now Christians. And they go back to their cities and they start churches and they start to gather and they're starting to try to process through what does it look like to have faith. And Paul writes this letter to them in Rome and he spends 11 chapters explaining Christianity very thoroughly, detailing very, very specifically why is Christianity good news? Why is it a good thing? And ultimately, what he ends up doing is in chapter 12, he takes a turn. And over the turn, he moves to a very practical component of the letter. He's like, okay, I've given you all the profound stuff. Now, I want to give you the really practical stuff. And in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, he gives us this insight. It's just a couple of sentences, but Romans 12, 17 is a passage worth digging into. It's why I put it in the message notes because we can miss how truly profound it is after the fact. He, he starts off with saying, do not repay evil for evil. Because he wants them to be aware that that's the natural response. That's the natural thing to do. So to brag on the church yesterday, you guys were incredible. We hosted the largest event in our history, right? It was incredible with more volunteers than we've ever had before in one of the most torrential hailstorms I've ever experienced here. And it was an incredible day. 
And some really amazing people have been working months to pull this thing off with 60,000 plus eggs to make sure that every kid has just the right amount of eggs. And after the first drop, a parent comes walking up to me and he's really upset and probably adds a little bit of weight because he's also wearing his badge right here. And he's like, we need to talk. And I'm like, I didn't do it. <laughs> Got no proof. It's not me. He's like, I just watched a father with a garbage bag walk off the field filled with eggs. And I'm like, why didn't you arrest them then? He's like, this is outrageous. He shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, you should have shot him, you know. In my head, I'm like, why didn't you do something? You mean you got authority. You can be like, stop. I don't know what the law is you're breaking, but I'm pretty sure it's wrong. And he's so upset, and we're talking through it. I'm like, dude, it makes me mad. You know, to my son's uh, favorite book, it makes me mad, mad, mad. Right? As this toddler book he has. It's, I was so frightened. I mean, if that dude had walked up, I'd be like, you take him down right now, sir. <laughs> and some of our team we're talking about, because we're trying to deal with the next drop, and we were so fired up. Like, you are literally robbing candy from children. Who does that? And the natural response is to just want to slap somebody when they do something stupid. Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. Some honest people are like, you ain't the only one. It's a, but Paul recognizes, like, the natural response is to want to repay evil with evil. That's the natural response, is to give them back a little bit of a piece of what they gave us. We want them to hurt. We want them to suffer. We want them to struggle. And yet Paul... In Romans 12, 17, it says, no, the natural response may be to pay back evil for evil. The supernatural response is to do something completely and utterly different. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Now, this is really interesting. In fact, we can miss how truly profound. It says, be careful, but that doesn't carry the weight. He's, he's referring to a, this incredibly diligent, disciplined way of thinking through it. He says, I want you to understand that when we go into a conflict moment, I want, I want you to wrap your head around not what you see, not what you think, but to take a step back. And not only being careful in the eyes of everybody, it's not even just the the perspective. He's like, to do what is right. Because when you're frustrated, when you're angry, it feels right to wrong them. Doesn't it? They need it. It's a sense of justice. They need to be put in their place. And he's saying, no, be careful to do what is right, not what feels right. And in the eyes of everybody, he's essentially kind of what's in leadership language um, that's been popularized. He's essentially saying, step up to the balcony, get a little bit of distance, stand up top, and almost imagine the conversation playing out in front of you. But you're no longer in it. You're the person observing it. 
And what that allows us to do is, is really ingenious. When you're no longer the one in the conflict, but you're the one sitting on the balcony observing the conflict. Why? Because you know, Paul has said, the natural way is to repay evil for evil. The supernatural way is to push back a little bit and gain a perspective. And in the course of doing so, see the picture. What this allows us to do is take, take the conflict seriously, not personally. Because conflict should be taken seriously. The argument you have with your spouse, your teenagers, your loved ones, your coworkers, clearly it's a serious thing. But when we take it personally, that's when the ground underneath us starts to erode. That's when we start to respond with personal attacks. Right? That's how something innocent turns into something that's brought mother-in-laws and father-in-laws and things from 15 years ago back into the picture because we've taken it personally. And by stepping up to that balcony to be careful, to give thought, the actual word is thought, this in, almost like an intentional act to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. That what it allows us to do is experience a grander perspective. So a couple weeks ago, this began to make the rounds around the internet. And very quickly, it, um, it kind of evolved into this meme-ish thing, which was if you're left brain or right brain, it, it'll decide what you'll see. If you want to know if you're left brain or right brain, do you see a mermaid or do you see a fish? And very quickly, people were like, that is ridiculous. There is no mermaid or fish in that picture. And then people were like, I see a horse or a seal. Like, that became the two kind of, like, waging things. And, and so the mermaid and the fish thing just turned into conflict and then started, you know, and people were like, well, what do I do if I see a seal or a horse? Do I have no brain? Do I have both brains? You know? Because the left brain, right brain isn't even, like, a thing, but it's a popular notion that we still have. And so what was interesting, though, um, for, for the nerds in the room, was that this is actually from a psychological experiment done in the 70s. And its actual title of the picture is the Donkey Seal Experiments. And so, yes, they're both there. If you see a horse or a donkey, congratulations, it's there. If you see a seal, it's also there. And what Paul allows us to do when he calls us to go up to that higher level is you realize that oftentimes in conflict, there is your side, there is their side, and there is the story that actually happened. And that by gaining balcony coverage, you realize there's a little bit of horse, not just all seal in the picture. This gives us an ability to avoid some of the traps, which is why that crockpot story is so fascinating to me. Because the individual was a specialist in navigating really intense conflict. He's a mediator. And so he, he picked up on this thing being a big deal. He said, tell me, why is the crockpot so important to you when you don't even use it to cook? And she said, well, it's because growing up, some of my fondest memories of family dinners was the dinners that my mom cooked in the crock pot. 
And I always dreamed of that being my kind of family when I got married and what I would raise. Okay. What about you? Why does the crock pot matter to you? Well, when I, she came to me and she told me she wanted this divorce, it broke my heart. I've never hurt more. And she has not cared about anything through the entire proceeding. And then one day the crock pot got mentioned and I saw for the first time I could hurt her. And I was determined to make her feel what I've been feeling through this entire journey. It's that ability to pull back where that third party was able to ask a couple of questions and realize that there was so much more underneath the surface to the crock pot. It's easy to see that story and kind of laugh at it, but the reality is we have our crockpots too. Things get really big in our life. Things start to kind of become the things we fixate in the conflict, especially if it's been a conflict that's been brewing for a while and that we kind of latch on to it. But by taking that balcony view, it actually puts us in a position to avoid one of the deepest traps that conflict has, which is narratives. Like narratives are destructive because narratives do something. Something that was actually observed in the movie The Planet of the Apes when it was originally filmed. If you've ever seen that movie, you know it's like a whole like a, a planet of apes and chimpanzees and orangutans and there's kind of this hierarchical structure. And one of the things that was noticed when they were filming this movie, because this movie was like way beyond its time with like all the face and prosthetics and stuff that they did. They would, and they noticed that even though all the extras didn't know each other, that every day at lunch when they ate, the apes always ate with the apes, and the chimpanzees always ate with the chimpanzees. That you literally would not see the monkeys eating with each other. Even though they were human, and they did not know each other. It was not like the gorillas have been hanging out for a while and then say, hey, let's do this gorilla thing together. They didn't know each other. Because what happens with narratives? Narratives form us and them. And us and them is a recipe for disaster. Because us versus them starts to employ a little bit of weaponry, shame and guilt, want to humiliation, want to put them in their place. And it's fueled by these narratives that live underneath the surface. And Paul is saying, look, that's the natural way. But the supernatural way, that be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, that's, that's getting on the balcony and seeing and observing and giving careful thought to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. To understand their storyline. Not just your storyline too. And this is powerful because it prevents this. And if I'm absolutely convinced that right now we are playing out the planet of the apes in our culture. Because do you realize when you start to do us and them, you start to categorize people. Do you know the etymology of the word categories? It comes from the word accusation. So when we start to split and divide people, then naturally we start to group up with people who are just like us and start to demonize those who are not. And oftentimes, even in um, 
story I was studying about kind of a political fallout in a small town in California. Um, the, the guy who was the center of the story, who ironically was one, a world-famous mediation, kind of like conflict mediator, runs for town government. And by the end of his term, the town has turned on him. And he's fallen into the very traps that he's made so much money teaching people how to avoid. And he realized towards the end of it that what he allowed himself to do was be defined by one single identity of being that member of the board against all of those people who didn't care. And then he tells a part of his story that was so fascinating. He talked about walking down the street one day and seeing one of his neighbors that used to be one of his friends but who's no longer a friend because he's one of them. And he was gardening. And this man loved gardening. And he commented how they talked for 15 minutes about gardening. And it was like old times. Because he had rediscovered there was, he wasn't just an angry kind of town board member trying to stop the surge of those people. He was a gardener too. And I would argue, this is just side note, I would argue there's so much more to unite us than divide us. And it's actually at the core of Christianity. It was why Paul, in another letter, would be so emphatic that what should mark Christianity, the people of Christianity, is not what divides us, is what brings us together in Christ. I think as Christians, we have such a unique opportunity in this moment to say it is not red or blue. It is not zip codes, it's not socioeconomic status, it's not race, it's not gender, that what unites us is a central hope in Jesus, and all those other things are important, all those other things matter, but the ultimate thing that brings us together is greater than all of those things, and it's Jesus. And that core identity allows us to avoid the ditch of the us versus them that Paul knows is just the natural way. And so here's what I want to give you what I call the five-minute challenge. Think about a conflict you have right now in your life. Or the next time you stumble into a conflict, maybe boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe it's with a school teacher, maybe it's with your parents, maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with a coworker. And the five-minute challenge is simply a writing challenge to kind of write out what someone in your office or what a neighbor or what someone who knows and cares about you both how they would describe the conflict you're in from both sides. I'm telling you, like, this seems really simple. But this can transform the relationships in your life. If you learn how to internalize this as a discipline of taking a step back from the conflict and actually even putting down, if you're a journaler or a processor, actually saying, you know, like, how would God see this storyline? Because God loves them. God loves me. God knows it all. I wonder how God would see this. I wonder how God would see, I wonder how my mom would see this. And to pull in that alternate perspective. And by doing so, we can actually start to rise above conflict. But then Paul gives us this last sentence that I think is so helpful. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul states twice the same idea, and it is on purpose. He doesn't say it once, because if he says, if it's possible, live at peace, that would give us excuses. 
I tried. Paul states it twice because he did not want Christians who were going to live out this supernatural way of responding to conflict. He did not want us to have an excuse. He wanted to say, look, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. It's like you can't walk away saying you've tried unless you've really tried. But simultaneously, he makes it clear, while our goal is peace with everyone, it's a, if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you. Um, this is, I, I heard one of my mentors say this one time, and I was like, this is this passage personified. He's like, your response ability, like the ability you have to respond in conflict is to focus on having no regrets, not reconciliation. And here's what this means, right? It's only possible to reconcile with someone if the person on the other side wants to reconcile. So if you go into conflict, especially if it's heavy conflict, and that person doesn't want to reconcile, there is nothing you can do. My father, who I did not know growing up, when I was in college, I had my, the first time I ever talked to him was on a phone. And he said, hey, I'm going to be driving through town. I'd love to meet you. And I was like, okay, I'm willing to meet you. I went to bed that night with the cell phone beside my head because I didn't want to miss his call because he said, hey, I'll call you. It's going to be late. I woke up the next morning thinking maybe I'd miss the call, and I didn't. He did it again. At this point, I'd talked to the person who was my biological father for about maybe 12 minutes at this point, my entire life. And I realized in the moment, I was completely willing to be open to a relationship. And he wasn't. And it was an incredibly hard moment for me to realize that this man did not have an interest in reconciling. And if my goal had been just simply reconciliation, I would have felt like a failure. But Paul's supernatural way of saying, look, you can't control other people, but you can control yourself. And so the reason I can talk about that, even though it was as gut-wrenching as it was, was that I don't have regrets about that moment because I was open-handed and open-hearted, and I tried. And on the day that I stand before God Almighty, I don't feel and I know that I don't have anything to regret. And for some of us, this might be the thing we need to internalize when it comes to conflict. Is your goal is not to make them click in and repair. Your goal is to do everything you can so that no matter what happens, you know you are at peace in your piece of the conflict. And ultimately to find freedom and peace in that. And that this, with love dates and heartbreaks, reality is sometimes there are heartbreaks. And I love that Paul recognizes, even embedded in that passage, sometimes there's dangerous people. Sometimes there are far darker versions of Oscar the Grouch. Sometimes there are really toxic people who hurt you intentionally, on purpose, every time. And 
Paul's call is not a blank check to be abused. It's not a blank check to be used and damaged. He says, hey, look, you have no excuse not to try. But realize there is a line. And and your goal is no regrets. Your goal is to have peace in your portion of the peace of the conflict. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And the reason that Paul can be so emphatic is, remember, he has spent so much of this letter talking about Christianity and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Which is why in Romans 12, 19 through 21, he finishes up the section, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. He's talked all about justice and how in the cross justice was satisfied. The things we had done that caused the separation from him, he took that punishment. And that God is just. He's like, look, you understand what I've said in the last 11 chapters, that God is just. That it's his responsibility. We don't have to walk around with a gavel, rendering judgments against people when they hurt us. That we can take peace, understanding, you know, God at the end of the day is in control. And that every wrong will one day have to be confronted in the presence of God. And he goes on and says, because of that, on the contrary, again, the natural, supernatural. He's like, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's making an allusion to Proverbs that Jesus picks up on in his teachings and doubly emphasizes both with his words and the way that Jesus lived his life. And he summarizes that with saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we can, oh my goodness, like this is so insightful. Um, so I read a lot of books on negotiation. I, I read a lot of random things, okay? So I, I had a whole, like, section of this message I cut out that was on phantom traffic jams and the math formula behind that. And I realized that, like, nobody in this room would absolutely care about phantom traffic jams and the math formula behind it. So I didn't even talk about it. But I actually enjoy that kind of stuff. And so this was one of those things where in the course of reading some of the best thinkers in America around negotiation and diplomatic responses and all of the greatest minds on planet earth and the most educated generation who's ever lived with more information access than any generation who's ever lived will write books and say things and people are like that's a TED talk that's amazing that's brilliant we can't believe you discovered that and I'm like Paul said that 2,000 years ago and this is what he says the cycle of conflict is amplified by bad and broken by good I just read a book where it was like profound thought. And I'm like, that's not profound. Christians have been doing that for thousands of years. Because what happens with conflict in the natural way? They said something to you, you're going to say something to them. Well, they've got to say something back to you. Well, now you've got to say something back to them. I mean, it's, it's how the Hatfield and McCoys, that famous story, that thing started about a pig. Literally a pig started the Hatfield and McCoys. Decades of conflict and death 
over a pig. Because that's the natural response. You escalate. You amplify. Conflict is a lot like feedback. If you walk up to a microphone, to a speaker, and it amplifies, that's what it does. And Paul is saying, no, we can break it by doing good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he can claim this because behind the scene, he recognizes it's the subtext of the whole book of Romans is that repair requires someone to take a first step in that direction. That is what the book of Romans is about, that God took the first step. God took the initial step when we didn't want conflict resolution, when we didn't want repair, when we were running away, not running to, he took the first step to us. That's what we'll celebrate next Sunday. And that all reconciliation, all repair requires one person to take the first step and to break the cycle. And that Jesus was that first step of God coming to us and restoring the brokenness in us and repairing the relationship between us. And that ultimately, Jesus took the first step so we can take the next one. And this isn't just true in the, the process of beginning to follow him as a Christian. It's also true in conflict, too, that we can take our cue and what to do from what we see Jesus do. That Jesus restored and repaired the ultimate chasm and division, which was between God and man, by taking the first step. And chances are there is conflict in our lives and in our relationships that could be repaired if we took our cue from Jesus and we decide not to escalate, but we decide to take the first step and to do good and to respond with love and to say, help me understand. Help me understand. Why is that crock pot so important? Imagine the healing that could happen in our relationships, in our nation. Because if you don't, what happens with narratives, what happens with conflict is further and further and further drifting apart. Further and further people entrenched into the us versus them. But I'm absolutely convinced because of the cross and because of the resurrection that there is no amount of distance that God's grace cannot repair and that our first step cannot get us closer to. And that ultimately... While there is no promise in the Bible of a no-drama relationship, if we embody what Paul said in this passage, responding to what Jesus did for us, then we can have a low-drama relationship filled with a lot more love, a lot more dates, and a lot less heartbreaks. Let's pray. God, thank you for grace, for mercy, for your love. Thank you for the repair that you bring, that you brought. And I pray, Dad, that you would give us the courage, the grace that we need to respond to maybe difficult people in our workplace. Help us to be people whose lives orient towards you and what you did for us so that we might be people who live in our relationships with no regrets.
no regrets about what we've said, no regrets about what we've done, and that we've owned our peace in that process to peace. And so thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done that ultimately is the inspiration and the example and the repair that we stand on. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to say thank you again for being here today. And um, as we wrap up today, we're going to sing a song. It's a little bit of an older song, but it's just a declaration uh, and a reminder about who Jesus is. I think in Christianity, we can get lost in a lot of different things, but when we go back to him and who he is and what he's done, there is so much to be learned, so much to be inspired, so much empowering that happens when we realize that we're supposed to look like Jesus in the circles and the lives that we live. We're meant to be little installers of heaven in every conversation that we have, glimpses and mirrors and so we wanted to end today as we've talked about relationships because he's the ultimate guide to relationship. That he demonstrated that you can live a perfectly fulfilled, impactful life as a single person because Jesus never was romantically involved and he never got married. That he demonstrates for us that there is no chasm, there is no conflict too big that he can't repair. There is no grace, there is no deed or action that grace can't heal and cover and that our call is to respond to him and to embody him and to reflect him in the course of every day of our life and I want to thank you as a church for being that embodiment of Jesus that we got to be yesterday and the way that we loved and served even the kids who didn't get eggs because some people took a bunch of them that some of you responding in those moments did what Jesus would have done you stood up and you you engaged them and you, you said, I'm not letting you live, leave today without understanding how glad we are you're here and throwing eggs in the air, pretending to be a helicopter and making sure their bags got stuffed. And that that only happens because of you and your generosity and the way that you give your time and the way you give your resources. And so for those who call Encounter Church home, thank you so much for the way that you sacrifice and give so that as a church we can demonstrate his sacrifice and his love. And I hope that as we respond today, we'll allow that picture of who he is, even what we did yesterday, to begin to fill every relationship, that we'd be marked by his reflection in our lives. So I want to invite you to stand, and our team will lead us in a closing song.